From Equality Arizona, you're listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Jean Woodbury. I'm the Interim Executive Director at Equality Arizona, and each week on the show, I talk with a queer person living in Arizona about their story and their communities. Today's guest, Samuel, is a student at ASU and a relatively recent transplant to Arizona. And that means, like more than a few people I've spoken to on the podcast, he moved here during a challenging moment in the pandemic. It's something that can make it incredibly difficult to find community, but Samuel really hit the ground running when it came to some of the political organizing that they've been involved with at ASU, and I think that's really remarkable. They also share an experience I've talked about with a lot of college students of coming out during college away from family and navigating the tension there. But before I go on, let me take a minute to let Samuel introduce himself. Hi, this is Samuel Denjaka Jr. Um, My pronouns are he, him, and they, them. This was also just an incredibly fun conversation for me because we got to talk about gender in a way that I think is really rare, and I'm really excited to share that. I think that there's a chance it gets a little academic at points, but overall, it really isn't. Before we start the interview, I should say that we've got some great guests lined up over the next few weeks, but we're always looking for new people to talk to, and you don't need to be in politics, and you don't need to be an academic. That's not what the podcast is about, actually. So if you'd like to share your story on a future episode of the show, just send us an email at hello at equalityarizona.org. Or you can sign up on our website at equalityarizona.org slash stories. All right, let's roll the tape. The second she found out that I was like involved in like politics, she's just like, "Yeah, you should definitely be on the podcast." I was just like, oh, "Okay, okay." Oh, that's great. <laughs> like, I don't have that much podcast experience, but uh, I'll <laughs> I'll do my best. Yeah. No, most people I talk to have never been on a podcast before. The idea is just to get people's stories, figure out, you know, what's their experience been in Arizona mm. as you know as a queer person living here. Um, and it's it's fun because sometimes I get to talk to people and they've lived here their whole lives. And so I get to talk about like, oh, how has this neighborhood changed over the past 20 years or whatever? And sometimes it's people who have moved here. um, You know, a lot of people moved here during the pandemic, actually. Mm. And so then that's always really interesting to hear about how that went. You were saying you've lived here for two years, right? Uh, It'll be two years by this coming August. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, still the new kid on the block. (laughs) (laughs) What did you move here for? Uh, I moved here for school. Oh, okay. Cool. Are you are you at ASU? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you said you've done some political organizing. Is that student-led organizing? Yeah, that's student-led organizing, although I've started, I personally started to branch on some more like general like community organizing off campus as well, so. Oh, cool. How did you find your way into that? I think, like, I would imagine moving to a new state, getting started at a school, it could be kind of hard to figure out where to plug in. Um, I think I'm actually part of this, not generation, but, like, cohort of people who, 
I'm more aware that people have been organizing, especially around like Black Lives Matter for like the past almost decade at this point from like Ferguson and then some, but then yeah. 2020 really was like a reawakening of that for like a lot of politics, like anti-racist politics, feminist politics. Like a lot of people around my age started to tap more into that, especially with like the 2020 election also coinciding with a lot of that. And I personally, however, didn't get that involved the uprisings because my family, lots of them are immunocompromised. So I decided... Oh, okay it would be best to stay home. But the second I arrived at college, it was then just like, okay, I want to get involved in like explicitly like leftist work. So. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. I started joining like a couple orgs, like uh, young democratic socialists of America, Mm -hmm. Mecha day ASU students for justice in Palestine. So I guess I really did hit the ground running. (laughs) Yeah, you really did. Why DSA seems like they have a pretty big presence at ASU. Uh, yeah, we do have a we do have a fair sized presence, especially amongst like general left wing activism. And although there have been points where in the past, especially it was like a little lower, at least before, during the like the height of the pandemic, it was very hard to like facilitate anything since like it was all online. But we're definitely more on that like upward trend of like people like coming to events. Of course, like masks <laughs> yeah. required so that people are safe. Did you feel like during that period where everything had to be online that it got harder because, well, why, why do you think it got harder for people just like not wanting to be on Zoom or wanting something that they couldn't do? Yeah, I think it was harder for a lot of people to be on Zoom because I'm aware that some people have in the past done a lot of organizing work like digitally or online for a variety of reasons. Most of us just generally aren't used to navigating those spaces, so it was a lot harder to, like, general, like, social cues, for example, are a lot harder to read through, like, yeah. <laughs> a screen versus, like, seeing someone's, like, full body, like, emote and whatever. Yeah, and I feel like it's harder to get to know people. Like, okay, you can have essentially the same meeting on Zoom, but you don't have, like, the coffee chit-chat beforehand and the walking out to the door conversations afterward you miss out on like all this like bigger picture of it yeah i don't know it was it was interesting and i think what you were saying about like being kind of clued into what was happening for for a much longer period of time going back to like when was ferguson like 2014 ferguson was about 2014 yeah yeah so that really is like a decade at this point yeah, so lots of people, like, I personally wasn't involved in politics at that point, because I was 11, but <laughs> <laughs> but especially as I got older, I was, like, aware, like, it was, like, a lot of, like, in-person group, like, people out, not only in the streets, but in their neighborhoods and wherever, like, coming together, and then, like, the pandemic kind of, like, jostled people in, lots of people indoors, like, obviously, you had, like, essential workers that still had to, like, had their lives on the line, but lots of us for some periods of time were generally isolated from the broader community. It's like physical presence. So Yeah. Well, when you were 11, I mean, I figure you weren't involved in politics, <laughs> but were you paying attention to politics and, and what was happening in that area? Yeah, I was paying attention. Like, obviously, it didn't, I didn't have that, like, same level of, like, explicitly, like, Marxist analysis or whatever, because, like, <laughs> turns out 10-year-olds aren't exactly reading Capital before bed. <laughs> Um, not so often not not so often especially not in my family but i was generally because like i remember seeing stuff about like the arab spring that was even a few years before that That was even a few years before but i think that was like the first major like international thing that made me like interested in like 
politics in general. Yeah. Because, like, I'd never seen, like, people, like, looking at the leadership of their country and being like, no. <laughs> yeah, it was... The Arab Spring was also a really big moment for me in, in 2011. And I was already starting to get involved in politics at the time. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, there's, like, there's some really interesting ways to organize that feel new and special. And one of the things I'm really curious about, because you mentioned maybe using the word generation, maybe using the word cohort. Mm -hmm. Do you think that growing up in that milieu of like seeing these big protest movements happen from the time you're eight or 11 to now and with the pandemic and everything and the uprisings, do you think that's shaped people of your generation in a unique way compared to other generations? Yeah, I would definitely say so because the big overlying theme in seeing a lot of that is like the proliferation of the internet and all of that like obviously like at this point like even millennials kind of like grew into it but like you weren't seeing like people live tweeting for example about like 9-11 as it was going down it was still like happening mostly through like the television and radio right but like now like you're getting second by second updates on like various like events and like ideas going on and there's definitely like good and bad to it but it's definitely like shaped the way that our generation approaches like political organizing yeah i mean d did you basically grow up on the internet like when you were hearing stuff about the arab spring is that because you were online um honestly part of it was online but since like it, my household was still in that transitory phase of where like i still like watched like the news with my parents so oh, yeah. i would see a lot of that stuff on like cnn but then i would see like an article about it on like the family computer i'm like oh this is interesting but it wasn't like, the internet wasn't, to, at least my access to the internet wasn't to the point where I was operating in spaces where, like, I was having those sorts of conversations. It was I just see, like, yeah. It was still within the space of, like, there's the family computer in the computer room, <laughs> yeah. and here's the TV, and we're going to watch the news together. Just, like, you only have an hour on this thing, so <laughs> my goal was not political education in that one hour. It was playing right. Papa's Pizzeria within that one hour, and <laughs> that I did. Yeah. Well, it sounds like maybe your your family was kind of like politically tuned in if you were watching the news together uh yeah my family was well has always been politically in tune however there is like obvious like ideological variance like my parents are definitely a bit more like establishment liberal minded and i'm mm -hmm. just over here just like i might be a little bit of a communist <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, but that's not that's not too far afield i think you know, a lot of people I meet who are more in that communist field grew up with like really conservative parents. Yeah, so like I'm at least my at least my parents are just like, oh yeah, racism's bad, feminism sounds pretty cool, and <laughs> versus like people. Well, I guess my family's not exactly the most queer affirming, but oh yeah, it's it's not to the point of where they're like smashing beer cans because they had like a trans person in proximity to the brand or something. Oh yeah, that's. That's such a ridiculous situation. Yeah, honestly, I am quite scared about that whole thing because, like, I'm just like, they, they're not going to stop with just beer cans. Like, well, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. No, I mean, do you run into any of that kind of behavior in your day to day life? In my day to day, it's not necessarily targeted at me, since generally I identify somewhat as non-binary, but I'm generally like cis past it's whatever so it's not really targeted at me but on asu campus there is like a proliferation especially recently of like preachers and evangelicals like mm -hmm. 
shouting their typical nonsense. And it's just like, uh, they're just like, you're going to hell. And I'm just like, I'm going to an upper division sociology class. You want to come with? Because <laughs> I think that's pretty close. These are like the guys who have the big signs that have like a bunch of different yeah, and then you can things like, written on them. Yeah, and I think the latest one was just like, you can play like a little game of just like, all right, how many of these labels? Like, you know, fornicator, liar, pothead. I'm just like, oh, damn, I'm checking off all of these. <laughs> yeah. No, I've I've done that. I've looked at like um, a meme of it, basically, and <laughs> seen how many I could check off. It's it's a weird environment at school sometimes. Yeah, and I think that just ultimately speaks to like, and I guess I'm getting to like a broader ideological conversation of like the role of the university within like broader capitalist structures, because like you'll see them claim all the time, like you know we're like a supportive school, we're like we center like minority students, but then like they'll hide behind, like, free speech laws, and it's just, like, that person's a literal, like, neo-Nazi, or, like, they're, like, shouting slurs at, like, people, like, wearing hijabs to class or something. It's just... Right, which is harassment at that point. Yeah, but, like, you can't do anything, otherwise the school or will be punishing you versus, like, the actual person that's, like, <laughs> spewing, like, a lot of hateful rhetoric. Right. And I know there's also been a big controversy, and I don't know how much this controversy is, like manufactured but it's the way i don't know which one you're referring to. (laughs) well yeah it's um i mean a lot of them are but like at colleges there's this whole free speech thing with like visiting speakers where there's one group on campus who wants to bring in you know some alt-right speaker potentially and then another group on campus wants to protest that and then the university gets mixed up in there trying to say well, we need to protect these speakers or whatever. It seems like it plays out differently on different campuses, but I know it's happened at ASU a few times. And it's a weird situation because, like, for me, I'm on the outside. I haven't been a student for a while. And so I just hear what people who are angry about one person's decision are saying. And I don't know what's really happening in the school. But with this free speech controversy stuff at, at colleges, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like it could be a big distraction at the least. Yeah, it's definitely, like, uh, do you know about, like, you know, the paradox of tolerance thing? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess for whoever listens to this. Yeah, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, it's basically this idea that, like, tolerating intolerant ideas just eventually leads to, like, the people who are purveying those intolerant ideologies ensuring that there's no tolerance in society. So you can only be tolerant of certain ideas and concepts to an extent. However, but if you tolerate hateful ideas, then you end up not getting an overly tolerant society in the long run. So it's it's impossible to be like 100% across the board tolerant of like every idea in the so-called free marketplace of ideas. And this is really reflected with the, I believe the Jared Taylor situation is like one of the most notable incidents that happened at Arizona State where it was just like, hey, this is a white supremacist. And then every student left the center was just like, hey. (laughs) And what does that hey translate into? Is it like asking the school to not allow that person to speak or? Yeah, it's a lot of asking the school not to speak or less asking, but like trying to pressure the school because when it comes to like a lot of activism on campus, you eventually come to an understanding that you can't really ask nicely. It starts becoming like, we're going to make it really inconvenient for you (laughs) to do this. Like, we'll... Like, we'll, like, pick it up outside of meetings or whatever. We'll, 
will basically drag the school's name through the mud if necessary, because at the end of the day, these officials care about, like, their bottom line, not, like, the well-being of students. So if you hit them where it hurts, then they'll suddenly start listening. Oh, uh, yeah. That can be a really effective strategy. I mean, it's... If you're just going to them and saying, oh, could you could you please not do this? They've already decided, and, and your voice isn't going to be the persuading yeah. thing. But I don't, I don't actually know a lot about that specific situation. Was that pretty recent? Uh, that happened last semester, or early this semester. The timeline's all jumbled up in my head, but I do, I do remember like it was a whole thing, like, a couple of organizations like YDSA and Match have put out statements. Another group of people, I believe, like a group of anarchists, like held a demonstration right outside the event to basically show how disproving they were. But, you know, of course, they they didn't listen. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it definitely is like a game of like how much pressure can we put on these people that way they actually do what we need them to do. And it's like, Ultimately, there are some things that won't work because it's just like the university is just like an extension of like hegemony and capitalism. So like they're ultimately going to serve those interests first and foremost. But you can definitely like push them a bit to be less overly harmful. What are some of the conversations that happen inside these groups? Is everyone pretty much on the same page saying, hey, this isn't okay," Or are there questions about what's the right way to respond to this? There have been questions about the right way to respond to this. Like, some in the past have argued for simply, like, not engaging, which in my head makes some amount of sense because a lot of us are, like, minority students. Like, lots of us are trans, non-binary, people of color, disabled, like, the exact kind of people that, like, a neo-Nazi bastard would go for. So, like, we're just... (laughs) That's a good point. So not engaging just from a standpoint of... Not overexposing yourself. Yeah, not overexposing yourself, not, like, exposing, like, the most vulnerable in your group's, like, potential danger, because lots of people have faced some amount of danger and pushback before for activism in a variety of circles, and it's just, like, obviously, like, if you're in these spaces, there is some amount of risk, but, like, you you still have to be pretty calculated about it. That makes sense. Part of the reason I wanted to ask is because I figure, like, these moments of having an actual thing to mobilize about... Mm -hmm can be really great in terms of like building the strength of your organizing group. And I figured, you know, if there's, if everyone's pretty much on the same page versus if there's more disagreement about how to do it, it might change the way that that growth happens. Are you seeing that more and more students are getting involved in that kind of organizing work? I'm definitely seeing I'm definitely seeing an uptick in the number of students getting involved. Like sometimes it might not even necessarily be like any of the groups I'm involved, but like I know there's been like a group of high schoolers. I think they're called like Support Equality in Arizona Schools. Like they're a group of yeah. high schoolers that have been like really on the front lines of fighting in their high schools against like a lot of the transphobia and general queerphobia in their schools. I'm just like, damn, if I was even half that conscious in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they just did that big walkout, like, uh, last week, I think. Yeah, I saw, and I and I think, like, lots, of, it's, it's so, ha- for me, I'm quite happy to see, like, all this energy in, like, our age group for, like, a lot of these issues. Like, I mean, dualistically, I'm also just like, damn, it really sucks that, like, we can't, like, just be kids. Like, your biggest concern is just like, oh, like, I have, like, a math assignment due tomorrow, and not like, oh, there's, like, a fascist upper general uptick in fascism in this country. We need to do something about it. Right. I mean, I I think about that a lot 
with those kids especially, but even people at ASU like you, and there's a lot to do as a student outside of, you know, being politically engaged. And I, I think the kind of engagement that's about your school is fantastic. But like, yeah, it'd be great if you could just be able to focus on school, right? <laughs> do you hear a lot of that from, from other people in, in that cohort of organizers? There, and within that cohort, and I guess this is specifically like a student issue because not everyone that's an organizer is necessarily trying to be college educated for a variety of reasons. But right. Specifically for students, that is like a whole thing of like us juggling like that, like obligation of like, oh, I, like sometimes there'll be like events that we can't do or like we have limited capacity because it's just like this is happening around business hours. So lots of us are in class or lots of us. Right. Like, have work to do. And, like, part of that is, like, on purpose because the system relies on us being too exhausted or too occupied to, like, resist against it. Yeah. I run into that a lot trying to invite younger people who are mostly students to the state capitol because the the education committee, like all committees, meets during business hours, which means actually most people involved in education, whether they're students or teachers, can't can't be there to weigh in on bills unless they take time off of work or miss class, which I mean, obviously isn't totally (laughs) fair or, or accessible to people. Um, I want to roll back in time a little bit because we were talking about being a kid growing up and you said your family is sort of somewhere on like the middle of the spectrum of queer acceptance. Um, not necessarily the middle, but more so, they aren't actively making my life more difficult right now because I'm oh, openly okay. queer. <laughs> okay. So, which, at least for now, is I think the best of what I'm going to get. I see. That can be a challenge for college students I've talked to, is going away from home but still having some kind of dependencies and ties to your family and trying to navigate being out. Is that, it sounds like it's not really totally a problem for you, but maybe a source of tension it's not a problem now. Like, when I first came out, it was like the sky was falling. <laughs> Honestly, when was that? That was last February I came out okay. as bisexual. So that's still pretty fresh. Yeah, I guess it is. Even though okay. I'm just like, oh, that was forever ago. And it's like, oh, no, it was only like a year ago. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, those the sky is falling moments, I think, happened for a lot of people. And then it's great when your family calms down a little bit. Um, have they, or have they just kind of stopped engaging? Um, they've lessened their engagement, at least, because I can be quite argumentative about the whole thing. Like, I'm just mm. like, <laughs> like, like, even though, like, I'm learning to, like, start drawing boundaries around that, it's just like, I'm not putting my energy into, like, you're not gonna have that come to jesus moment where it's just like oh no it's fine if you would like come home with like a guy versus like a girl or whatever like i don't think i'm gonna get that from like this one conversation so i'm Mm. not yeah it's uh sometimes it never happens i think and sometimes it's i mean i don't know any family where it's really happened just through talking about it right no Um, i i've yet to meet people like that either people either just like have very similar stories to me or they're just like yeah it was like a two-minute conversation and my mom was just like okay cool i love you and i'm just like wow (laughs) (laughs) lucky for them 
Like, honestly, lucky for them. I wish it was like that for more queer and trans kids. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us, when we come out, are not met with that kind of reception from our parents. And then for people like, like you and I also came out during college, I think the hope for a lot of us is that we can find other people at school that we can create community with. Is that something that you've found within those organizing spaces? Uh, yeah, that is definitely something I found. And I can like talk forever about like how that's honestly the most critical part of like trying to formulate any sort of like revolutionary, like liberatory politics. It's just like having like a group of people that you can be in community with. Can you expound on that a little bit? Like, because the way society operates, you know, with, like, capitalism running amok, it's, like, very easy to, like, isolate people, especially if they're, like, on the margins of margins, like, that don't, like, share in a lot of those same struggles. But being able to, like, at least since I have the privilege of being a college student where, like, there is a lot of people that are openly queer and people that are also explicitly political about the fact that they understand how political queerness is, mm-hmm. that has made, like, the whole deal with me coming out thing and just, like, general political activism so much easier because it's just, like, these are people that will, like, not only, like, be with you to, like, come for you, whatever. Like, these are people that will, like, hold you to account when you mess up or... Oh, right. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, that's also, like, a big part of it because, like, people think it's, like, all, like, love, light, and laughter, but it's just, like, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, but there's also, like, definite moments where you kind of, like, need to be called in for, like, a variety of reasons. Because, Have you experienced that? Um, In, like, smaller ways, but I've also been on, like, more of the, like, I guess, like, giving side of that interaction. Oh, where, yeah. like, I'm just, like, we need to collect ourselves. <laughs> Has that gone pretty well? I mean, that's hard to do right to call call someone in and really not end up with a much bigger conflict uh i think it i think it's gone well for the most part i think like obviously there'll be like moments where it's just like petty squabbling but it's also just like Mm -hmm. lots of us were like 18 19 20 years old grappling with like the general traumas of existing under capitalism Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's not easy work i think that's part of like building that new framework for, like, justice and whatnot within, like, your friendship groups and not just imagining it on, like, the macro scale. When it goes well, what do you think helps it to go well? Is it that shared sense of struggle? It's part of that shared sense of struggle, but, like, especially if you're dealing with people that might be, like, a little bit more privileged than you in a couple ways, it helps if, like, like, there isn't, like, an immediate defensiveness when it's just, like, hey, there's, like, a race thing at play here, or, like, oh, yeah. hey, there's, like, a misogyny thing that we need to, like, address. Like, not only, like, interpersonally, but, like, as an organization. Yeah. I mean, most of the time when I've seen that come up, people react really defensively. And, I mean, honestly, if I get criticism, I can also react a little defensively. Like, I think most people do. But then the way I, I've tried to, like, reframe any kind of criticism is someone is like doing me a favor by giving me like access to something I missed out on. And I don't know if that's, that's something that um, I was really in tune with when I was in college necessarily, that kind of way to receive criticism. I'm still working on it. And it sounds like a lot of the people that are in the group you're in do have kind of that, that attitude of, when I'm giving someone criticism, it's a gift. When I'm receiving criticism, it's a gift. 
yeah, we're all ultimately trying to be better. So it's not like coming from a place of like, I'm antagonizing you. I don't like you. <laughs> so. Yeah. That is not easy. Like, that's a skill. Like, resolving conflict, giving criticism in, like, a peace-oriented way. Where do you feel like you all learned that? Honestly, I didn't know that much about it at first because from personal experience, I when it comes to, like, the whole sphere of, like, constructive criticism, whatever, I think I'm just like you. I take things very personally. Mm-hmm. But I, instead of, like, immediately going to, like, defend my honor, it just becomes a game of just, like, oh, well, damn, I don't think I'm hot shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, let me just let me just retreat real quick, because clearly I'm not it. But, like, in terms of learning, honestly, for me, I don't know about, like, the general group, but it's come through basically, like, being exposed to, like, people, like, seeing other people that are engaged in that sort of dynamic, and then watching how, like, hey, this person didn't, like, immediately just be like, well, yeah, the clothes you wear sucks, so... Oh, right. It's just, like, a personal attack. Yeah, it didn't immediately devolve into, like, personal attacks, so it's just, like, here are some actions that you committed that were harmful or that I didn't really appreciate. Can we talk about this? Mm -hmm. Or, like, here's, like, a general trend I might have noticed, like, as, like, a broad organization, which... And honestly, that's probably the most... That probably helps because, like, for better or worse, most of the times where I have been in that call situation, it's like I'm being called in, like, with a group of people. Like, I've had people, like, sit and basically call in the men of an org and be like, hey, <laughs> like, people who aren't men don't really have much of a space to, like, speak during certain points. Or, like, voices aren't being heard that much, so. Yeah. And that can be hard criticism to receive, I think, also... Anything that's sort of about, like, gendered privilege mm. when... I mean, you were mentioning you identified, to some extent, as non-binary. Mm-hmm. Getting criticism about gendered privilege when you also are in this space that isn't exactly just privilege. Like men. Yeah. yeah. Um, that can be hard. That can be hard to receive, I think. How does that play out for you? Um, for me, personally, it's kind of with... The understanding that I might have a complicated relationship with gender that definitely also intersects with race because I'm a black man. So that's a fun spot to be in. But can you? I'm cutting you off from the other question. <laughs> can fine. you explain what you mean in terms of that complicating it, race complicating gender? Um, in general, like since race and gender are like social constructs that like largely inform each other, and you can kind of see that in individuals like. I, I'm trying to answer this in such a way I'm just like, this better not be a whole other podcast episode because I can talk a lot about gender. <laughs> but understanding, like, the way that I embody myself, like, in a sense that, like, because gender, ultimately, the way it works, it's, like, it is built for, by and for, like, white people. Like, black people aren't allowed to, like, really explore the way they might relate to gender the same way that, like, white people can. So... It creates an interesting dynamic when you realize you've been socialized a certain way, mm-hmm. especially when you, like, learn about concepts like manhood and masculinity a certain way in the context of, like, how, like, maybe your white peers or non-black peers learned about those concepts. So it it definitely, That's like... That's fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely something that, even though I'm not really cis, like, the idea, the concept of being a black man, at least for me, is just, like, kind of something that'll, like, stay with me because... That's the way I just generally move through the world with that intersecting experience. Yeah. 
And it's the position you're put into to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. And I cut you off, but we were talking about the idea of like responding to criticism about gendered privilege when you're in kind of a different space of relating to gender. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's understanding that your the way you embody yourself is valid. It's it's whole. It's you, and that is okay. Like gender fake. <laughs> gender fake. Gender fake. Put put that on something like yeah, a shirt. Put that as a tagline on the podcast. <laughs> um, but it's also understanding that there are different ways that you might embody yourself that aren't completely detached from like a lot of those structures that you still have to like unlearn like Mm -hmm. that is not to say that like oh because i'm also where the pitfall like people are just like oh well like trans women have like male socializations like it's just like shut the fuck up (laughs) (laughs) wait can i swear it's you can swear yeah it's fine i've probably done that three times already but anyways (laughs) um it's understanding that you there are definitely different ways that like you being non-binary or being trans doesn't mean that like you've completely immediately divested from like patriarchal gender understandings or racist gender understandings like yeah that's still like a lot of work you have to do like both internally and with your community so it's just like i am of course valid in understood in my labeling of like a non-binary black man Mm -hmm. but like i'm also aware of like due to the way that i navigate the world i might not be fully aware of like the way that people of marginalized genders have to like confront yeah no i like how you keep saying that that idea of like how you move through the world or how you navigate the world because i i feel like a lot of the time we focus on especially with gender Gender as like an internal thing Mm -hmm. or gender as like how I relate to myself. But gender is also and maybe more so just about how we relate to each other. Mm -hmm. And that's where that kind of discrepancy comes in of, yes, I'm valid, but also there's so much more going on. Um, So it's really it's really cool to hear you explain that so, so clearly. What are you studying? Oh, this will be a big shock. (laughs) Um, I'm doing a dual degree with sociology and justice studies and then a minor in gender studies. Okay. So So do you get to talk about this kind of stuff in in class all the time? um, Yeah, we definitely do get to talk about it, but... (laughs) I'm I'm trying to pace myself in such a way I'm just like I could spend three hours talking about this, <laughs> but like there are definitely limits to what the academy has to offer in regards to like a lot of that work. Like you can obviously take like a wonderful variety of classes that talk about like the social construction of like a lot of these like different categories and then how that affects how we navigate the world as individuals. Yeah, and of course like the underlying structures below it, but like. You, one thing you have to be wary of is, and I think a lot of academics, both historically and currently, and I definitely see this trend with like younger leftists in general, regardless of whether or not they're in college, is that lots of people are really good at reading and articulating very complex theory, but when it comes to practice, you're not going to find that in the classroom. Oh, yeah. Okay. When I was thinking about some of the limits you might run up against, I was thinking about like limits of theory that come up. Um, there are some, but it definitely also just depends on your department or like the individual instructor. Like I'm taking a class right now that explicitly outlines like a lot of post-colonial theory from like Fanon and Cabral and like Mm. Patricia Hill Collins. So like, that's very like explicitly like, these are people that have like 
ardently struggled for like liberation but it's yeah. but it's also not lost on me that whenever it becomes a discussion of just like okay what do we do with this knowledge people kind of start to like gaff a little bit it's just like oh, it's well what do you think some of your fellow students are there for if they aren't necessarily interested in doing something with the knowledge I mean, I did a little bit of research and I figured out uh, apparently a sociology degree was one way of becoming a cop eventually. I don't know how one would think that's a good idea after even taking an intro class, but that's right. an option. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of people are gaining like a lot of analytical tools and skills, but they don't realize that they're still being educated by an institution that largely relies on the perpetuation of those same systems that you're ironically enough critiquing. Oh yeah. Okay. No, that, that's, that makes sense to me. I mean, it can be interesting talking to people who have people who have read a lot mm-hmm. and people who are very good at analyzing and, and speaking to the texts that they've read and, and recalling things. It can be interesting to talk to people like that who then don't really connect it to real life yeah. necessarily. I mean, even people who actually have real life relevant experience, right? Like sometimes talking to other trans people who are very literate, very scholarly, um, it can feel kind of detached from, okay, but but we're two people who are talking right now. <laughs> um, does this actually line up with how we're talking to each other right now? Or is it just like a cool book that you read? Which isn't to like denigrate studying. I mean, I think it's I think it's incredible and super useful. And if someone else has already had a really great thought and written it down, you should try not to reinvent the wheel, I guess. But it can be weird. And I think that like straddling the line that you're straddling of like on the ground organizing and then being in these classrooms and and being really up in the clouds with theory can be can be a challenging line to walk sometimes yeah it it definitely is because i (laughs) i very recently had this experience and where with why do you say we hosted like a black grieving space where like a lot of like black people especially like we were like grieving like a lot of like loss from like state violence or like Mm -hmm. a lot of issues that arise like interpersonal relationships with non-black people and it was very i kind of like laughed to myself a little bit afterwards because like the actual day because like it was basically my day of like trying to prepare for the event and then go to a seminar on like black masculinities that was like very grueling and theory heavy and then immediately have to like deal with like organizing that event because it was just like i'm fresh off of this like high flung like literary and theoretical exploration of like embodying black manhood and i'm immediately going to a space where i'm just like hey i have a lot of trauma related to my race let's discuss <laughs> so like just like the jarring experiences just like left me like i'm exhausted <laughs> yeah exhausted from like theorizing and and making your own experience academic and then also having to be really open about it in a personal way yeah so which i guess also speaks to like how what lots of these institutions <laughs> i'm i'm really bashing on this on this whole like academia thing because i'm just like i'm in so well, much I think debt I, I think i can tell that like you you're criticizing it from a place of like respect i think yeah it's it's definitely from a place of like I know what it could be in an ideal world detached from, like, legacies of imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, and this, that, and the third. But mm-hmm. right now, it's an extension of a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's fair to criticize it. I, 
I don't think a good university would want its students not to criticize it. That that is true. So, you know, Michael Crow hit me. <laughs> Actually, please don't. You're a very awkward man. <laughs> well, so once you get your degree, what are you planning to do after that? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> because as much as I'm lambasting it, I have looked more at generally getting more involved with like research and whatnot and in mm. and, and i guess like academia but then then comes the dilemma of just like i want my research to be of benefit to like the people who are just like on the front lines of the struggle or dealing with like the worst impacts of colonialism and capitalism but also these institutions make it so that you have to write in such a way that only the most like erudite of like scholars can read it and it's just like well this isn't really helping anyone this is just like a circle jerk of like how many thesaurus words can we stuck stuck like just it like, does feel like that sometimes yeah i wonder if there's like a, a niche you could carve out of getting to do that theory and and research and academic study but being much closer to the ground and to the people organizing there is actually some like marxist sociologist his name is like michael burroway i think He's, like, actually pioneered what he calls, like, a subfield of sociology called, like, public sociology, which mm. it's less of, like, a school of thought, like, oh, this is, like, feminist sociology or, like, this is, like, social post-colonial sociology of race, but, like, um, basically, like, a methodology of, like, bringing a lot of that research directly into, like, engaging with social issues and, like, making it so that it's not just scholars that are involved in the conversation, but, like, everyday people like into with like a lot of these issues so that's really cool that's definitely something i want to read more up on and then like also like applying to just like all right i have to explain symbolic interactionism everybody sit down (laughs) (laughs) i think a lot of people would actually really love that kind of thing i mean if you can connect those ideas to to people in in a language that they're going to get into Mm -hmm. a lot of people are really curious and, and want to hear those kinds of ideas yeah, and I can definitely understand why so many people are, like, hesitant. Like, a lot of these ideas, like, especially, like, Marxism, like, once you start picking up on, like, a lot of basic principles, it becomes, like, really intuitive. But so many people are just, like, so weird and complicated in the way they, like, convey these ideas. And I'm just, like... And it's definitely something I've had to work on before because sometimes I'll be in, like, I'm going to info dump about gender. And then, like, even my friends who are also, like, students are just, like... I'm not sure if you're speaking English right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I also sometimes feel like being a little bit above the level of of discussion that people are maybe coming in ready for can be great if you can pull people up Mm -hmm. to that level. As long as it's not intentionally trying to be like Like, patronizing or whatever. Yeah, it's fine to like have like different expertise levels. Like even without like insert hegemonic systems here, like people just like there are people who could fix a car. I only know how to turn a key. So (laughs) (laughs) they they have that level of expertise and they can probably help me figure that out. But I, and I ended up deciding to read about longstanding societal issues for a degree. So (laughs) yeah, no, I think it's great. Would you stay in Arizona to do that kind of work? Um, I'm definitely after I graduate, I'm, I've decided to at least stay for, like, maybe a year, year and a half, not doing anything related explicitly to, like, school or, like, a grad program. That way I can just chill out from not, from, like, classrooms for a bit. Yeah, that can be nice. I 
didn't want to jump right into grad school after my undergraduate degree. Like props to the people who do that, but I'm I'm not like the Arizona state, like that institution has put me through a ringer with just everything. (laughs) So I think taking a break from that and just doing some general community organizing work, like, beyond, like, the halls of academia, I think would be real nice. So, at least for a time, I could definitely try seeing how to integrate, like, that public sociology framework. Yeah. Um, I'm not too sure about, like, after, if I'll just, like, go to, like, grad school in, like, another state or somewhere else, but, yeah. No, that's really cool. Well, thanks for talking with me today. This was this was a lot of fun. I'm glad you agreed yeah. to do this with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, like, a very <laughs> random, like, opportunity. But I was just like, you know what? <laughs> I'll go on a podcast. I'll go on a podcast. I've never done it before, but it <laughs> sounds fun. Well, I hope you did have fun. I did. Cool. Thank you. Of course.